Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. I know many of you are here visiting from out of town, out of state. Not sure if out of country it would be the case. Um, anybody here from, say, Mississippi uh, might be from out of the country. Uh, just kidding over there, Kelly. But we're glad you're here worshiping with us this morning. And now this is a question for, well, it's for everyone really, but I, I'm obviously addressing the folks at Grace Community when I ask this question. If, if the Lord were to move you next month to, to St. Louis, Missouri, for whatever reason, you're, you're in a new place, doesn't have to be St. Louis, it can be anywhere. I, I would hope one of the top priorities for you would be, where are we going to worship? Where are we going to serve? What church are we going to attend? Now, if that were the case, if you're looking for a new church, if the Lord moves you and you're looking for a new church, what are you looking for in, in, when, you, when you're going to find, what, what are the aspects of a new church that you're looking for? In fact, let's just take a, a minute or two and answer this. I, this could be in trouble, you know, because somebody could say, adult Sunday school, which we don't have adult Sunday school. So don't say anything like that, all right? Uh, but what are you looking for? If you're looking for a new church, what are you looking for? What? Adult Sunday school. <laughs> Deacons, remove these women from the back here. <laughs> yes. Want to hear the word. You want to know that the word is being proclaimed and being proclaimed accurately. What else? Discipleship. You want to know that people are being discipled up according to the great commission that's been given to us. Loving atmosphere. In fact, we're going to read about that this morning in 1 John 4. Loving atmosphere. Yes, glorifying God. It's about God. It's not about us. It's not about people. Small groups, worship, uh, people that care about the worship. We could go on and on. I would hope... That the top priority, if you are looking for a new church, the top priority is going to be what do they believe about the word? Do they proclaim the word? That was the first thing, appropriately, the first thing that was mentioned this morning. What do they believe about the authority of Scripture? The authority and integrity of Scripture. And how is it proclaimed? What do they believe about the gospel? Do they, do they proclaim the gospel? And embedded in what a church says about the gospel is what that organization believes about Jesus and about God's role in our relationship with him. I, I want you to remember something. If you're ever looking for a new church, it's important to understand this. It, it, what a church, especially from the pulpit on Sunday morning, what a church says or doesn't say, excuse me, sometimes what a church doesn't say is just as important as what they do say. When you're missing the gospel, even though everything that they say sounds good, something is wrong. Understanding and believing truth at the level that God gives it to you in His Word is the most important pursuit in your life. Now I say it's a pursuit because it's, lifelong, it's a lifelong endeavor. It doesn't 
happen overnight. You can't go to church one Sunday morning and get everything you need to know. You can't go to small group. You can't. That's why we need a steady diet of the Word. It's, it's way more than just what you hear occasionally at church. We need to be digging into the Word and pursuing truth. But pursuit of truth is not an end in itself. Jesus is the end. Just as Jesus said to the Pharisees, the ones who had made knowledge the ultimate goal in life. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Just knowing the Word makes you right with God, you think. But you're missing the whole point. The Scriptures testify of me. Understanding, when we understand that knowing Jesus through the Word, is a lifelong process. It begins to, to, to reveal the weakness of a steady diet of messages that provide five steps to a successful marriage or three key principles of Christian leadership. Now, there's a place for those things. I'm not saying that, that that's wrong. In fact, Sean was talking last week and saying, look, topical messages are difficult. I think topical messages are difficult for all expository preachers. And today's message is a topical message about love but if that's all you ever get is a steady diet let's think about this subject let's think about this rather than digging into the word week in and week out you're not going to understand God's truth at the level that he has designed for us to know it um only a full understanding of truth is going to answer life's most important questions and And the most difficult questions as well, such as, how can a God of love allow something to happen? This happened last week at Newtown, Connecticut. We'll we'll come back to that in just a moment. Before we go any further, though, I want to tell you about a man who was passionate about the truth. He he lived at a time where uh, the deity of Christ was very much in question uh, amongst churches of all places. It was a... Early in the 4th century, um, there was a man named Arius who began to, he was trying to figure out how God can be one and then there's Jesus. And so he essentially came to the conclusion that Jesus could not have been co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. God must have created him. The Father must have created him. He must have created the Son. And so his big phrase was, there was when he was not. In other words, there was a time when Jesus did not exist. But God created him. Well, this was heresy, plain and simple. And Emperor Constantine, newly converted to Christianity, did not want division in the churches. And there was a lot of division in the churches. Not, not too many at first. There were just a handful of, of, of bishops, of pastors who were proclaiming this idea of Arius that Jesus was not really God. But it was enough to make uh, quite a rumbling in the empire. And so Constantine said, we're going to all get together at Nicaea. That's modern day Isnek. Turkey, and we're going to have a council, and you're going to hash this out. Not sure that Constantine was de- decided which way he was going to lean when he when he called them all together. Now the story is that 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 when the bishops gathered, there was a particular bishop from Myra, uh, again modern day Turkey, by the name of Nicholas, who walked over to Arius, slapped him in the face when he saw him. 
essentially saying, you heretic. You know this Nicholas. He's known as Saint Nick. That's our Saint Nicholas who was that passionate about the truth. Now, I'm not suggesting that you slap anyone who denies the deity of Christ. I mean, there are a lot of people who, in fact, who, who ring your doorbell, you know, in twos, and want to talk to you about Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Scripture that we understand. Not a good idea to slap them and say, don't come back. In fact, if this legend is true about Nicholas, we don't know if it is or not, but if it's true... Then the next part is likely also true. The bishops immediately reprimanded Nicholas, but essentially restored him back to his place of of respect and importance before too long. Uh, Nicholas was a generous man indeed. He he left coins in in the shoes of children, and and there's the story that there were these three women who couldn't pay their debts, and and they were going to be sold into prostitution, and he secretly threw bags of gold into their windows. He was, an, he, he was a, a, a giving, generous man, and he did it anonymously so that people uh, wouldn't know who it was. And so consequently, the legend of St. Nick um, took hold. But it's also true that this was a man who was passionate about the truth. He was passionate particularly about the truth about who Jesus was and is as stated in Scripture. And Nicholas wanted people to know what that birth was all about. We've talked about, and Bert mentioned it again this morning, the opportunities that we have to talk about Jesus, to to speak biblically about Jesus, but also about our topic this morning about God's love for the world expressed in the gift of Jesus. Uh, Here's the problem when we use biblical language this time of the year. When we talk about God's love, we're not saying what the culture understands God's love to be. The culture... Uh, around us has a has a very different different idea about God's love, and so, and to, to exacerbate the problem, a lot of times we don't know that we we're, we're meaning different things when we use the same language. Uh, to be inaccurate about the love of God, though, is an a eternally fatal mistake. So we need to communicate very clearly about God's love wrapped in Bethlehem's. I'm going to read in just a moment uh, from 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to remain seated because we're going to, we're going to read deliberately. Uh, and, and then in light of this widespread misunderstanding about God's love, we're going to consider some biblical truth about God's love that's, uh, th- that we're only going to scratch the surface. And, and we're not going to be tied to 1 John 4, but a lot of the truth that we're talking about this morning is, is found in 1 John 4. So keep your Bible open to that passage, even though there'll be other verses on the screen that you might want to write down and check out later. Um, and also, we're, we're going to be going in a lot of different places, thinking about God's love. But a lot of it is found right here in 1 John 4. And in fact, as we read, I want to pray also that the Holy Spirit will reveal truth to you, God's truth about love, even as we read, so that you might even anticipate where we're going in the message. So let's, let's pray.
Our Father, uh, our hearts um, swell with gratitude and love at this time of the year along with Easter. Maybe more than any other time, our focus and our attention is on all that you have done for us. But Lord, as has already been mentioned today, it's, it's, it's a difficult time for some because of the realities of life that don't seem to express the spirit of the season at all. In fact, express the very opposite. So Lord, as we think about the truth of your word, may our hearts rise in praise and gratitude regardless of our circumstances. Speak to our heart and reveal truth to us even as we read through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If there is um, a book of the Bible that speaks to the, the heresy of Gnosticism that Jesus was not God in the flesh, it's a different kind of heresy than Arius uh, was speaking about or the heresy that, that, that Arius was teaching. But nonetheless, Gnosticism stated that Jesus was not God in the flesh, that, that this world is evil, this material world is evil, and there's no way that God would come in the flesh. So it was just a spirit. He seemed to be there, but he wasn't really. If there's a, a, a book in all the Bible that addresses that, it's First John. And John is talking about Jesus being among us and the, and the ministry that he had. And then a great deal of the book is wrapped up in talking about one of the ways that we know that we belong to him is this, if we love one another. So you're going to see a lot of that in, in this passage that we read, although that's not our focus. Let's jump into verse 7. Beloved, <clears throat> let us love one another. For love... Is from God. So right off the bat, if you believe that, you have to recognize that regardless of what happens in this world, if there's love, it comes from God. Love is from God, and whoever loves, as God does consistently, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world. So that we might live through him. This is love. God sent his son so that we might live. In this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is, essentially means that it, 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 you could re, read that he was the appeasement for our sins or the satisfaction for our sins. God's wrath has to be understood before his love can really be appreciated and accepted. 
And God's wrath was toward sin. And Jesus stood in the way of God's wrath and absorbed all of God's wrath that was directed toward us, toward those who believe. He was the propitiation. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, we were and are way worse than we want to think. And God's love, sending Jesus to die for us, is a big deal. So don't be looking at other people and say, that person's just impossible to love. If we... If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. You don't think about your love for other believers as being a part of your sanctification. But God is perfecting his love in you when you reach out and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. And if his spirit lives in us, we're going to love one another. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. That's pretty pretty, um, strong language. Does that mean that? Jesus saves everyone in the world? No, look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, you have to understand, especially this man John, all, all, all of the New Testament, but especially this man John, in his gospel says, I and the Father are one. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so, when he says, you must believe In Jesus, as the Son of God, he means you must believe that Jesus is God and his sacrifice on the cross is our only hope of heaven. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Important words there. Not only to know, but to believe the love in Jesus as our sacrifice, as the sacrifice for our sins, that love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world." We, if we abide in the love of God, we are prepared for the day of judgment. When you ask people in the United States, well, anywhere in the free world, anywhere, well, let's say the free world, when you ask them, what do you think ought to be emphasized more? The love of God, the justice of God, what, what, the love of God is the number one thing. Oh, let's just talk about God's love. In fact, in the 1980s, the the numbers were running like 75 to 25. We ought to talk about God's love over his justice. And it might be a little different now because of the way people understand justice. But imagine if, if you ask this kind of a question in a survey. What's more important to understand, the love of God or the judgment of God? 
Well, they can't be understood apart from one another. But, 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 the, but the sentiment of most everybody is, look, don't bother me with the bad stuff. I want to think about, there's enough pain in this life. Let's talk about love. That's what we need, is more love. There is no fear in love, verse 18 says. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And punishment that is, by the way, waiting those who don't know God's love. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, again, we're going to be coming back. I'll I'll, I'll refer back to it, but I I hope these words are burned in your heart and mind as we begin to talk about God's love. If we're going to have any hope of understanding God's love, we must first recognize that God's love is multifaceted and must be understood both in its many facets and in relation to his character. What does the love of God mean to you? What does it mean? What do you think it means to those who don't attend church, don't spend time in the Word? What does God's Word, what does God's love mean to us? There are at least four different ways that Scripture speaks about God's love. The, the first is the, is the unique love that God has for His Son. The Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. John 3.35 says... The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Time and again, Jesus talks about the Father having revealed all things to Him. And and Jesus uh, returns the Father's love in equal measure when he says in John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The love that exists between the Father and the Son is this intra-Trinitarian love is the model for us in the way that we relate to God. His love for us, our love for Him. In these two texts, uh, along with John 5, verses 16 to 30, a long passage, we're told how this special love is expressed between the Father and the Son. The Father reveals His will to the Son. In love, He reveals everything to His Son. And the Son, in love, responds with obedience to God's plan. And that's how our relationship with God is supposed to work. Uh, Well, at least it works that way on God's part. If we are going to know love at all, it must come from God. That's why when you ask a question to a group of people, some who know the Lord and some who don't, and you say, what does the love of God mean to you? And people start, well, you know, this is what the love of God means to me. The focus moves in wrong directions because here's... Here's what is true about almost all of God's truth. It, it's never the right question to say, what does this mean to me? The right question is, what does this mean? And then I can understand what it means for me. 
But what it means to me doesn't matter. What it means is primary and then I get the full benefit if I believe it. God begins to apply it to my life in amazing ways. And so much of what you hear at Christmas about God is just not right because it's all wrapped up in me. Someone said a while ago, what you're looking for in a church is that which glorifies God and not man. Look, it's, you don't think about it this way, but when you say, well, let me just tell you what this verse means to me. You could be very well glorifying yourself. You could use that language and still be meaning that I am trying to understand God's truth and how it applies to my life. But so often, we make Scripture say what we want it to say. And here's the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father reveals all things to the Son. And the Son says, I love you, Father, and I will obey and it never goes the other way you never once in scripture see the son telling the father this is what I want you to do there is this order in the trinity always which speaks loudly to the order that God has given for society and for marriage and for church leadership so When we think about God's love, we cannot forget about the unique love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father and the model that it is in our relationship with God. And would somebody please turn some air on? I am burning up. I'm just burning up. I, I, can't, I can't go any longer. Is that possible? Thank you. You do not want me to take the sweater off. You just don't. You don't. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. A second particular way that God's love is described in Scripture is His love for all that He has made, both His creation and His creatures. It's not been long since we read in Genesis 1 how God, how pleased God was with all of His creation. And when, and, and when Adam and Eve fell and it, and it distorted this perfect, not only their lives, it messed up their lives, it distorted this perfect creation that God had made for, for man's blessing. He immediately, the instant that that happened, he immediately set in motion the plan that was already made before the world ever began that would redeem both man and the created universe. And his love... This was his plan that he would send his son in the world, into the world to die for sin, as John 3.16 tells us. Now remember, we just read in 1 John 4 that Jesus is the Savior of the world, but it doesn't mean that Jesus will save everyone. But he will save all who believe. When, when the rich, and, and he loves all mankind. God loves all of mankind. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he was trying to make this young man, not that he was trying to say that's the way to be saved. He was saying, you can't be saved that way because you can't keep all the commandments. And the young man said, I've done it all, all from my youth. And Jesus said, okay, let's check on number 10 about coveting. Sell everything that you have and follow me. Again, that wasn't the prescription for salvation. What he was saying was, you have to give up everything. If you're going to belong to me, quit trying to do good things. You're never going to be good enough. 
Your only hope is to believe in me, to follow me. And what does the scripture say? The young man went away sorrowfully. And it also tells us that Jesus loved him. But Jesus didn't call him back and say, hey, 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 hey don't worry about that. Just, just come on. We'll, we'll deal with that as we go. He required him to give up that idol of love for money right from the very beginning. And Jesus refused to accept the rich young ruler just as he was. And you hear that language all the time, don't you? God accepts us like he is. No, he doesn't. He does love us as we are. But he doesn't accept us as we are. Until we repent of our sins, which is essentially to acknowledge our sin before God and any hope that we have of trying to work our way to him. And then believe that what Jesus did on the cross was done out of God's love in payment for our sin. When we believe that, then he accepts us and he calls us into his family. But he loves everyone. Scripture also tells us, though, that God has a special love for the elect. Ephesians 5, 25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Old Testament is full of passages where God reminds Israel, it was not your beauty, it was not your valor, it was not your righteousness that that caused God to choose you. Simply, he loved you and he chose to set his affection on you. Wow. Um, If you understand the truth about Jesus' death on the cross and about his blood being the propitiation for your sins, you may be tempted to be arrogant because you're so wise to recognize God's grace and, and believe in Jesus. Don't be. Resist the temptation to be arrogant. There is only one reason that you know and believe That Jesus died for you. And that's because God chose for you to believe it. And he caused you to believe it. Look I didn't always believe that. But I do with all my heart. Believe that. Scripture teaches it. It is just so difficult to refute. That if you believe it's because God made you believe. And because he loved you. Now if you're here this morning saying. I I don't don't even know what. I'm not sure I get what you're talking about. I've always thought that. If you just be a good person. And do the best you can. And and, and I've never killed anybody. And I've never cheated on my spouse. And I've never cheated on my tech. Well okay maybe a little. Uh, But hey look I'm not as bad. And I think I'm going to be all right When I look around me. I think I'm going to be okay. That's not. It has nothing to do with whether you get into heaven or not. We are stained with an with with a stain that cannot be washed off. Only the blood of Christ will cleanse us and make us worthy of God. And if you've been thinking about that and then you hear me say, but if you believe that, it's because God chooses you to believe that and you're thinking, well, well, did he choose me? Yes, he chose you. If you've got enough understanding to say that I believe Jesus died for my sins, then he chose you. That's how it works. And that's a love that he has. And instead of arguing about this and saying, oh, that's unfair. What does scripture say about fairness? It's not fairness. We, we determine what's fair. 
Allison and I, when, you know, when there's dessert and we have to split it, it is just not fair. It never is. That's why one cuts and the other chooses, you know. That's, that's the way it works. Oh, kids hate that, don't they? They just absolutely hate it. But it's a lot, life is not fair. But I want to tell you something. If you know God because of his love being focused squarely on you, that is a cause for great rejoicing. And there are ways for you to express God's love to people who don't know him that will help them to receive the blood and will be open to the blessing of God's love. This is not something you talk about before a person knows the Lord as much as you do afterwards. But it's important that we understand God's love in this way. It's one of the ways, it's one of the primary ways that it's expressed in Scripture, number three. And then the fourth, God has a special love for the elect who are obedient to his commands. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's a conditional love, in fact. Now, and it's conditioned on obedience. It's, it's not a salvific love. It has nothing to do with our relationship about father-child as far as whether we are in the family or not. Uh, you cannot earn God's salvation by your own works. But in the same way that the son shows his love to the father by obeying him, we're called to obey. John 15, verses 9 to 10, say, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus is talking. Abide in my love. And then he says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, flourish in my love, dwell closely with me, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do not misunderstand. God's love for his elect is everlasting. But there's a special way that God's love is expressed for those who keep his commandments. You see the danger of, of, of overemphasizing or emphasizing only one aspect of God's love without considering the whole. I mean, if we speak only of, of God's love uh, for the world, we may fail to re- recognize his holiness and, and his judgment against sin. And then when disaster strikes... You know, we're questioning what is God's, where is God's love? If we emphasize God, only God's love for the elect, then we can drift toward the notion that God loves the elect and hates the reprobate. My goodness, we're going to have to deal soon enough in Genesis with Esau, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. But, but the passages that speak of God's love for the world cannot be ignored. And then if we speak only of God's love for the obedient, well, you know where that goes, salvation by work works. In, in short, we cannot speak about the love of God as independent, compartmentalized loves of God. When we understand God's love, we have to understand it in the whole. And we have to understand it in relation to his character, such as his holiness and his justice and judgment and his mercy and his grace. This is the first and and primary truth that we're going to think about this morning concerning God's love. The second of three that we're going to think about is if our belief about God's love is not rooted in Scripture, it will not stand. We will not stand in a time of crisis. Our faith will not stand. See, our faith is, is not some subjective psychological feeling. 
people, when, a lot of times when people talk about faith today, they're thinking about faith in faith. No, the object of, of our faith is always God. And his gift of allowing us to believe in him is what sustains us. And if it's true that salvation comes by the word and word, and faith comes by the word and uh, uh, I'm getting it mixed up. Romans ten seventeen. my goodness. Somebody look it up and read it for us. Somebody now. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's this progression. It's, he's talking about salvation, about how God sends people to those who have never heard and they preach and, and then people believe in the Lord. But there's a principle there in Romans ten seventeen that's very important. The more time we're in the word, the more... Our faith is strengthened and we believe our faith, the faith in the Lord and in the word of the Lord and in the promises of God. It's all over scripture and almost everything that happens in our lives is, is, is happening so that we will believe and trust God more. Even when it doesn't make sense. Look, I'm in one of those rare periods of my life where almost every prayer that I pray, and oh, I, I, I so regret saying this. It's not in the notes because I know that I'm going to be tested big time when I say this. But oh, it's like everything I pray, the Lord just answers that prayer. And, and he does that in, in the ways that I ask for. And usually it's for other people. It's not for me, but I'm just praying for other people. And... And he, and he gives us those seasons. But look, if he always answers every prayer, where's the need for faith? We just, it's just kind of like, well, okay, I'm going to ask God and, and he's going to do it. That's the way it works. This is the formula. Look, there are times when it feels like nothing you pray for is answered in the way that you ask it. And that's okay. Because God is bringing us to a place of trust. And if our belief about his love is not rooted in scripture, it will not stand in a crisis. We will not stand in a crisis. Jim McLaughlin was telling me the other day about hearing a a pastor at a funeral. It was a funeral for a child. And he said, my God would not do this. In other words, you know, it was some other God. It was some other force. But my goodness, think about it. Just think about it. Even if you believe that, do you believe that your God could have stopped that tragedy from happening? And if so, then how are you going to deal with that? We seem to prefer a watered-down version of God. But the problem is, is when something bad, really, really bad happens, we don't have the kind of God that can, can sustain us. Unfortunately, when our understanding of God's love is rooted in our emotions rather than Scripture, we get that watered-down version of truth, and it's truth that is crucial for our eternal destiny. The gospel is the only hope for those who have been devastated by a tragedy, whether that comes in the form of a loss of a loved one, a chronic physical condition, or, or handicap financial ruin, relational disaster, no matter what, the gospel is the only answer for those kinds of things that don't make sense in this life. Now, we've got to be careful in our, and not be heartless. We have to be so careful about saying, well, you know why things, bad things happen like that? It's because sin in the world. Look, the best thing you can do for someone when he or she is hurting is just to come alongside them and just be present so many times you say, I, I know some of you think, I've heard it, I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. Well, I, I want to go 
reach out, but I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything. Job's friends were brilliant the first week that they sat there and didn't open their mouth. They just sat there and, and they were present with him. So when they started talking, they got in trouble. And same for us. We, and I never don't talk. I get so I'm in trouble a lot. But just be present. And then if you hurt with a person, if you cry with a person who is weeping, then perhaps one day God gives you the opportunity to share this incredible good news that he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. There are so many today who are thinking, but by the grace of God, our community might have been touched by this madman in Newtown, Connecticut. The truth is, but by the grace of God, I am not that madman. I would never, only by the grace of God. God loved us enough to send Jesus because apart from Jesus bearing our sin, we would be punished throughout eternity. That's why this last truth this morning means so much. God's love expressed to us in Jesus is a gift beyond measure. 30 years ago, I, I went on a couple of trips to the Holy Land. How many did you go to, Jim Acock? How many Holy Land trips did you? 11? And I he quit just about time I cranked up. I only went on two. He went on 11. So he went all over that part of the world. Well, usually when you go on a Holy Land trip, um, you try to take in a couple of other countries, one or two other countries, and in, 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 in not just Israel. And we went to Cairo, Egypt. Um, and we went to visit the Egyptian Museum while we were there. I, I am, to this day, I'm stunned that I made it alive from the Mena Hotel to the... Have you ever, anybody been to Egypt? Uh, I, I promise you, it's the craziest driving in the world. I've been to a lot of places. I, not every place, and I'm, I'm sure there are places that are unbelievable. Five, six lanes of traffic, except there are no lanes. There are no lines in the road. People are just, you know, and there are people without legs standing beside the road getting worn across, and it's just, you know, 65 miles an hour like that. It's just crazy. But when we get to the Egyptian Museum, we walk all around, and then we come to this spectacular room. I think it's on the second floor. It's in the back it's called King Tut's room, for short. That's the short version, King Tut. Um, and the gold in this place is, is, is just stunning. Everything is gold-plated, uh, including a chariot that Tut rode in. He's got four or five, I think, total, but there's this one chariot that's in the center of the room. There's a mask that... They think it's a pretty good representation of what he looked like. It was taken from a mold of his face that weighs 24 and a half pounds. It's solid gold, 24 and a half pounds. So there was a lady there who was one of the museum representatives, and I, I, I said, uh, 
what's the value of this room? She just shook her head. You know, I said, what's a wild estimate? She said, there's no way to estimate. I mean, the value of that room goes far beyond the price of the, of the various artifacts in that room. It is a treasure that is so great you cannot place value on it. How much more valuable is God's gift to us in Jesus? All that gold doesn't mean anything to Tut now. Whatever you have in this life that is so good, including as Bert alerted us to, even this wonderful family means nothing when you stand before God. The only thing that's going to matter is Jesus. Now, if we want to talk about family, First John, we go back to First John where this family is very, very important. And we go as a family to the Lord. Each one answers for his or her, him or herself. I, I understand that. But at the same time, we go as a church family. Thanks be to God, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. How much greater God's love shown in the gift of Jesus than all the treasures of the world. God's love for us is so much greater than directing our lives so that everything goes beautifully. One of the things that the Lord has led me to do is to respond when there are little things. I was spilling coffee at a level this morning that I was wondering, do I have a brain tumor or something? You know, I mean, if, I'm just telling you it was everywhere. Coffee, cream, it was everywhere. But the Lord has, several weeks ago, just said, why don't you just thank God for the cross? I mean, you've been learning in Genesis, this is a fallen world. And as one pastor said, ain't nothing going to ever go right, no time, no how, no way. And that's true. Life's just that way. It just never goes like you want it to. Why don't you just, when those times come, thank God for the cross. I, I'm sure I'm going to be tested on that in a much larger, on a much larger scale. But really, what greater can we do than to say, in the midst of the most awful thing happening to us, to recognize it is a part of this fallen world, but God loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die for me. One day, all tears are going to be wiped away. And joy is going to be uninterrupted. And that is possible through Jesus. Let's pray. The coming of Christ, but we also need to remember to look forwards to his coming again. From the book of Revelation... John writes, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him, even so. Amen. Remember that he is coming and coming soon.